Guys, good morning. How are y'all? How many of you have heard the saying, the safest place is the center of God's will? How many of you heard that? You can raise your hands. Will you stand with me as we read the word of God? Just to give you a little background where we're at in Mark, we're going to be in chapter 6, and this is the famous verse. Some of you have heard this Bible story before, but this is when Peter walks on water. Jesus is going across the sea, and we're going to read it in a second, but it's connected to something right before it. See, right before it, if you know the story, Jesus takes, what is it, five loaves and two fish, and he multiplies it to 5,000, just 5,000 men, let alone the women and children. He does this miraculous thing, and so I'm going to dive into this verse. It's going to be a weird thing because it's going to be transitioned right to this boat scene, but there's a reason for that. So here we go. So I'm going to mash up. Mark and Matthew together. So if you follow me in your Bible and you're like, where is he going? Remember, the Gospels are eyewitness accounts. If you've been to an eyewitness scene, you have somebody over here that says, oh, I saw that kid run across the street. And then somebody over there, there was a wall there, so they didn't see the kid run across the street, right? That's how the Gospels work. And when we put them together, we get this beautiful picture. They don't contradict each other. They fill in the blanks and like, oh, that's so cool. So with that in mind, here we go. Chapter 6, verse 43. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. How many basketfuls did they pick up? How many disciples were there? Seven, eight, 12. So they picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten were 5,000. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples. I love this. I love Jesus. He's so unpredictable. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get in the boat and go ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went on a mountainside to pray. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Underline that, highlight it in your, your, your app on your phone or in your Bibles. And he saw that the wind was against them. About the fourth watch of the night, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him. So they finally realized who he was. When they realized who he was, they cry out and they were still terrified. Immediately he spoke to them. He said, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Now we're going to transition into Matthew. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. It's really powerful what Jesus just said there. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, remember the wind was against them, He was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. And look, we're going to pick it back in Mark. They were completely amazed. Now, this isn't in a good way. We'll see in a second. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Okay, so we heard about the loaves. Now we're in this this boat scene, and at the end of the boat scene, Mark has a little commentary. He says, they were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were 
hardened. You can be seated. See, surely if it's God's will, then it's safe, right? That's what we think. But Jesus commands them to get in the boat. See, God's will is not safe. They find themselves in the center of a storm. If it's true that the center of his will is safe, then why is Jesus calling them to get in a boat that's bound for trouble, for difficulty? He sends them in a boat with the purpose of getting to the other side, but it's bound for trouble. It's bound for difficulty. We know Jesus knew that, right? Things started out good, but now there's a terrible storm all around them. After nine hours... They were still only halfway across the Sea of Galilee. If you've been to the Sea of Galilee, you know it's not a sea. It's barely a lake. Right, Brian Leg? You've been there, you see. This is normally a two-hour trip, if that. They are nine hours, and they can't get past the middle of the sea. These are experienced fishermen and boatmen. They were in trouble fighting for their lives. Yet here comes Jesus walking on the very thing that threatened to kill them. He was totally in control. You see, before this, it's so powerful because Jesus is on a mountain overlooking the Sea of Galilee. And from that mountain, it says he was praying all night. And then I love it. This is what cracks me up. Mark 6, 48, it said that he saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them. Get the picture of this. Jesus demands they get in a boat. They go across. They're in the middle struggling for nine hours. Jesus sees them on a mountain overlooking the Sea of Galilee. And we don't realize it. But he says it wasn't until the fourth watch of the night that he goes out to them. In other words, Jesus waited. What do you think Jesus was doing that whole time? He was praying. He was praying to the Father. Because pretty soon he's going to walk out on that water. See, their goal was to get to the other side of Bethsaida. It was his will to get over there. And they're straining at the oars in all their strength. And Jesus is going to be wiped by, wipe by them. In fact, he's going to pass by them. Look, it, it, for me, if I'm reading this account, I'm thinking this. I'm like, okay, Jesus, surely you're going to go out there and save them. Helicopter parents, you're in this room. I know you are because most of us have a little bit of that. Well, your kids are out on that water. You're sending the whole military you know, what Air Force, Army, Marines, Coast Guard, send them all, right, to rescue them. Jesus is passing by them. He's passing by father's kids. He's just going right by. Why? Why was Jesus, who saw them struggling at the oars in all their strength, and he passes by them? They thought he was a ghost until they finally realized it was him. And then it says, then they cried out. He lets them strain all night. But that doesn't cause him to come help. But something stops him while he's walking on the water. They cry out. They cry out. Could it be that Jesus is passing by and he wants you to cry out to him? Listen, we can strain at the oars all we want. But until we see our need for his power, that's all we do. We strain in our own strength. I love it. Jesus is walking on the water. He's going to reach the goal. He's going to get across the lake before they will. He's going to get to the other side to Bethsaida. And he's like, listen, you can strain all night on those oars to accomplish my will, or you can do it in my strength. I wonder if he prayed all night for the power of the Holy Spirit so he could do the will of God and do something he couldn't do in his own strength. Remember, he's both God and man, fully God, fully man. But he gave up his rights as God. That doesn't mean he stopped being God. 
But when he was baptized with the Holy Spirit, that's when he started ministering. He relied on the Holy Spirit, just like he asked us to. I think he was being filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, and he's going across over there, and it took prayer. Prayer takes sacrifice. How many of us would pray all night to go walk on, the wa- on water? Like, sign me up for the water walking team. I'll pray all night. Would you do that? But see, most of us wouldn't. Do you know there's people praying right now in this back, in this room right here? Because we're going to start praying for every service. Because we believe that we can't preach, do worship, do anything we're asking to live sent without prayer. And prayer takes sacrifice. It takes people giving up their time and going back there and praying that what happens on this stage, what happens out in the community, what happens here. We need prayer. If Jesus did, then I think we might. If the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, had to depend on the Father, maybe we need to depend on the Father too. See, some of you are caught in the storm right now. You're caught in the storm right now. God wants to work something in your storm, but he's waiting for you to cry out before he does it. Jesus would have kept walking. You know, as a side note, in Jewish culture, they saw the wind kicking up as Satan attacking. Remember, Satan is called the prince of the power of air. And it says in Mark, the wind was against them. Remember I said, underline that? The wind was against them. And it wasn't just superstition. Satan's not all powerful, but he can stir up some storms. He can stir up some storms in your life. Remember Job in the Bible, what Satan did to him? Guys, they are under spiritual attack in this story. We don't know we see it, but they're under spiritual attack. This isn't just a natural event happening here. It's a spiritual battle. Because once you step out into the will of God, it's not the safest place. In fact, you've entered into a battle. The enemy is going to try to kick up storms in your life and kick up storms around you, kick up storms in your job, kick up storms in whatever it is. You know, when Jesus commanded them to get in the boat, it was probably a beautiful day. Have you ever thought about that? It's funny because if if we read that scripture, it's sort of like picture a church function. You know, we're tearing down and then we're setting up and all that stuff. So it's the end of family gathering and we're asking a few people to, to set back up or tear down and set up. But Jesus is like, you know what, I'll take care of the rest of the, the um, 5,000. You guys, I want you to get in a boat and go across. I bet it was a nice day. You know, so many times when God calls us to something, it's a beautiful day, isn't it? Man, this is great. Going into God's will, I, man, I just feel happy. It's all cupcakes and rainbows and unicorns, right? And then you start to hear a little bit of knocking at the boat. You're like, what, what's that knocking? You're a little bit... Of, of clouds start to kind of peek over a little bit. You're like, that's good, I'm in God's will. So surely no storm's coming, right? Surely it's gonna be unicorns and cupcakes, right? And then suddenly a storm, bam, you're in the middle of the storm and it's all around you and you're like, where are you, God? How could you let this happen in my life? How could you let my weakness be so prominent? How could you do this in my life? I thought this was your will. I thought it was safe to be in your will. I thought it was okay to get in the boat. That was evening, man. That was a beautiful sunset when we got into that boat. Now there's not. Lord, where are you? See, it's great when he asks us to do something and it seems clear. But what about when it's hard and it's not so clear? When visibility is zero, what's our response when the storm is beyond our control and it's not in our ability to accomplish what he's asking us to go through? See, they're at the oars. It's outside. They're fishermen, boatmen. They know how to handle some waves. But it's outside their ability and their strength and they're under spiritual attack. 
Could it be that the Lord uses the places that are not comfortable to break the tendency in us to be comfortable and never change? The tendency in us to never grow in Christ, never risk. Maybe it's in the middle of our storms when life crashes down. Maybe it's when we set out to do his will and purpose and find more problems and predicaments than before we set out. See, it's great when we set out to do God's will. But when that storm comes, when that spiritual battle comes, when I'm all about my own strength, when suddenly my heart is revealed for what it is, thinking I have pure motives going into it, and I'm like, oh, I got some fear. I got some problems. How do we handle it? What do you do? Maybe he uses all those winds that come against us to teach us one thing. There's really only one thing that Jesus wants to teach you. Trust. Trust. See, there's only one battle principle that God has in the Bible. Look at the sun. We sang it this morning. First song we sang, look at the sun. Look at me. That's what Peter did when he got out of the boat. Look at the sun. Trust. Trust. That's all he's saying. That's his battle principle. It's a faith principle to trust him. But here's where it gets good. Because Peter, I think, knows what's up a little bit. He says, if it's you, Lord, command me, tell me to come out. I wouldn't say that if I'm Peter. I'm with the other disciples, right? I'm like, Jesus, hey, maybe you could calm these storms. We might die right now. I don't know, you know, FYI, have you seen this, Lord, that we're about to die? I'm not asking what Peter asked. I'm asking for a visible sign of assurance, right? If this is your will, God, then surely the storms will not kick up. I'm asking Jesus to improve the conditions, change my circumstances. But Peter asked for a command. If it's you, tell me to come. Command me, not give me a guarantee I won't get hurt. You see, what if you stopped asking God for guarantees and started asking God for a command? Ask him for a command. I do this all the time. Listen, I still struggle with worry. This week, I struggled with worry, and thank goodness I was doing this message, because God's preaching to us, as we get to preach to you, and we're the weak ones that just come and let God's glory shine. It's not us, but I had to say, Lord, in this moment, command me, because I'm worried. How do you want me to act right here? You command me, Lord, what do you have? Tell me to come out to you. See, when, when Peter says, tell me to come out to you, it's an interesting Greek word. It's, it's not used a lot. And it actually represents a command from a king. Do you ask the king for a command in the middle of your storm? Lord, I want some assurances, but instead I'm going to ask you for a command. John Wimber said Peter wasn't really walking on water. Now, of course, in the natural, yes, he was walking on water. But he was really walking on a word, a command. C-O-M-E, come. He walked on a word from Jesus' mouth. It was a faith walk. The Bible says we live off every word that comes from his mouth. The only way that we're successful is if we meditate on this word day and night. The word of God. You have a book full of his commands to guide you every day to strengthen your faith. Listen, faith is not a leap into the dark. It's a leap into the light because you have the word shining the light when you leap. Romans 10, 17 says this. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word. You want faith? Do you know the word? Peter is walking on a word from the living word. Sometimes you hear people say this. They say, I don't know God's word, but I have faith. Wrong. Wrong. 
See, what Peter was doing, he was building from another command, another act of God's faithfulness, another miracle. What happened right before this? We've already talked about it. I've hinted. Let me reread something to you. This happens right before they get in the boat. After they had eaten, so they're all full up. So, you know, when you're full, you're like, all right, I just want to sit on my porch, right? That's where we're at usually, right? A little barbecue in the stomach. Okay. But right after they eat and they're full, they're satisfied. Jesus commanded his disciples to gather up the remaining food, 12 basketfuls. And when he was done, told them to get in the boat and he would join them in Bethsaida across the lake. What do you think was in the boat at their feet? 12 baskets for 12 disciples that should have spoken of his power over the laws of nature, of his faithfulness. Listen, this is my point. They had a basket full of miracle food at their feet to get them through the storm. Faith, food that says God is still in this. God is still moving in my life. Even if I can't see it, I have a reminder of his faithfulness at my feet. This book is a faith food. Do you feed off the word of God? Does it strengthen your faith? We have a miracle book, but we never go to it. We let Satan keep us away from that. That's why in the fall, we're doing the F260 reading plan, and we are going to preach 52 weeks from the F260 reading plan for our whole church. You won't know, we'll preach for something that week. You won't know which passage it is. So we might have like a giveaway if you like get it right and we like preach on what it is. Because we know the power if we get in the word. All scripture is God breathed. It's a living and active. Peter could walk on the words of Christ because it was living and active. Maybe it's in the times when the wind is against you and feels like Jesus is nowhere to be seen that he needs you to look down at your feet and see those baskets and not see the waves, not see the fear, not see the grossness inside yourself, but see the basketfuls of his faithfulness, faithful reminders of his work in our life, in your life, reminding he's not finished with you. He's not finished with you. The darkness must bow at his feet and obey his voice. I said it early, but if you're like me, I have fear at times, anxiety. Worry can bow me down, but I'm not supposed to bow down to anything other than Jesus. Not fear, not sickness, not the devil, not powers, not principalities, not fear, not the future, not my circumstances. No thing, no man, no angel, no devil. I don't bow to anything other than my Jesus. So what do loaves, fish, and boats have to do with each other? Their failure to understand the miracle of the loaves in the boat affected their behavior on the boat. They had hard hearts. Listen, to, this is so important. This, this revolution is what I thought a hard heart was. You may not even agree, but listen to this. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. I used to think... People with hard hearts were like, you know, God haters or at least people in rebellion to them. You know, those sinners, you know, what, what have they been looking at on the computer? That kind of thing. And yes, the world does harden our hearts. But that's not the definition in this, in this passage. They were surprised at a miracle because they didn't remember another miracle. And that was an indication of a hard heart. Wow. Or another way of saying it is, relating to the natural more than the supernatural is an indication of a hard heart. They're shocked and surprised that this happened. By that definition, let me ask you, is your heart hard? 
The dictionary defines hardened as cold, insensitive, unfeeling, and unyielding. If you're honest with yourself, you'll have to agree that there are certain areas of your life where you have a hard heart towards God. And here's the deal. God made us so that we can harden our hearts and literally shut out unwanted influences. It's meant to be a positive thing. But because we haven't understood this, what God meant for good has actually worked against us. Mark 8, 17. Ironically, at a different time that he feeds 3,000, just right after all this happens, again, the disciples are slow to learn, to understand. Listen to what Jesus says, because it speaks to the characteristics of a hard heart. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, Why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? That's the key word. Do you not remember? In these verses, Jesus gives us symptoms that are descriptive of a hard heart. Unable to perceive, unable to understand, unable to see, hear, and unable to remember. These are all speaking of inabilities in the spiritual realm. And here's the deal. Even when spiritual things are perceived, you sense God's spirit when worship's happening. A hard heart will keep a person from understanding the few things that they can perceive. They might see what the Lord is trying to show them, but they can't get hold of it in a way to apply it into their lives. And you don't remember what God has done. Not remembering is a major indication of the condition of your heart. That's why the Lord said, meditate on this book day and night. Have I said that enough? Because I've already said it three or four times. Meditate on this book day and night. Only then will your way be successful. He knows that our hearts will give way to what our natural eyes see and to feelings. He knows we give into fear quickly. And we want to retreat back to the other side of the lake. So if they had hard hearts, we know that Jesus wants us to have a soft, spiritually receptive heart. So how do we have a soft heart? One thing. And Jesus said, it's actually the opposite of what he says in here, but we'll bring it back. One thing determines the sensitivity of your heart. One word is consider or remember. Whatever you consider, your heart becomes softened towards. Conversely, whatever you fail to consider, your heart becomes hardened to. Again, the verse says, for they considered or remembered not the miracle of the loaves, for their hearts were hardened. The scriptural term that would relate to consider would be the word meditate. Not new age meditation, but meditating on the word of God. So the disciples were hard. Since they didn't focus on the miracle, he was teaching them to live by faith. And when he sends them into into the storm, he sends a reminder of his faithfulness. So you have faith food too. I'm gonna say it again. You have faith food too. Just like they did, the Bible, to strengthen you in every storm and every life challenge, we must consider, we must remember the faith book and be strengthened by it. See, it wasn't gross sin that hardened their hearts. I'm going to be really crude here. But it wasn't like they're in the, the middle of the lake and they're like, oh, look at those fine ladies on the side of the lake. Their hearts were hardened because they didn't remember the miracle. They didn't remember what God had done. They were fearful. What are your eyes on right now? Waves. What are the storms for you? A lack of success, bad marriage, finances, rebellious kids, jobs, secret sins. Maybe it's not a sin, just sickness or calamity. 
that comes from being a part of a fallen world. They failed the test because they lacked spiritual insight and receptive hearts. The miracle of the loaves and fish hadn't been a lasting impression on them. We should expect to see the miraculous power of God manifest in our lives all the time. But the truth is our hearts have become hardened toward God and His supernatural power because of our failure to stay focused on spiritual things. And I say this, the power of God is little in us when the Word of God means little to us. Their hearts were hard because they weren't standing on the word. Listen, in Hebrews, it's a powerful passage. It says the children of Israel could not go into the promised land because they didn't take what they heard and mix it with faith. You can have a lot of knowledge of the Bible, but do you mix what you hear with faith? Peter mixed it with faith. Peter had enough faith to walk on one word from Jesus' mouth. If we risk more, we would learn more. You don't need a lot more knowledge. You need a lot of obedience to what you already know. It's the one that says, Lord, I don't know what you're going to say to me, but I commit myself to obey what you said even before you say it. It's signing a blank check and allowing God to fill in the terms. That's obedience. So often we don't risk because our hearts are hard. We don't live off every word that comes from his mouth. We forget the basket full of faith at our feet. Only one gets out of the boat. Are you willing to get out of the boat? Listen, there's a world dying and going to hell. And all we can give is the Lord our excuses when we should be asking him for a command. You have fear? So did Peter. But he faced those fears. How have, you, have you ever thought about this? Why did Jesus ask Peter to do something that he already knew Peter would fail in? Because remember, Peter sank, Right? Jesus asked him, why did you doubt, you of little faith? You see, Jesus wasn't rebuking his quality of faith or his quantity of faith, but the duration of his faith. Let me explain, because this this speaks to me. This is how I am. We usually beat Peter up, right? Man, how could he take his eyes off Jesus? Well, have you walked on water recently? The other 11 surely didn't get out of the boat. But look, Brian spoke about this last week. In two chapters before this account, Jesus rebuked a whole town because of their lack of faith. It was because of their lack of faith he was unable to do very many miracles. Jesus didn't say to Peter that you have a lack of faith. Lack and little are two worlds apart. They're miles apart. The town had no faith. Jesus wasn't saying, man, Peter, you had no faith. You see, Peter, and this is where I totally relate to this, Peter was known to have great bursts, an outburst of faith, and then he would retract. He's off to the starting line, but stalls somewhere between the half point. Same with me, same with you. Jesus said, I want your faith to keep growing, to persevere, to keep going. He wanted him to keep growing. See, remember Jesus said, how did he describe little faith? What seed? A mustard seed. I can't even bring it up here because it's so small you wouldn't see it from stage. Little faith can do amazing things. But if you know a little bit about the mustard seed, you know that it's the smallest of seeds. It starts small, but it grows. It perseveres. It takes over everything in the garden. In fact, it's a very dangerous plant. It's an evasive plant. It eats up other plants around it. It gets so big, it takes over. That's what Jesus is trying to communicate to Peter. Your little faith needs to keep growing, persevering. 
when Jesus said, why did you doubt? The word doubt that Jesus used carries the meaning of standing uncertainly between two ways, like a fork in the road. Peter saw two ways instead of one. He's like, your faith was working. You're walking on water. But you saw something that contradicted my command, and you just stopped, Peter. You stopped risking, Peter. You saw two ways instead of one way, which is to keep my, your eyes on me. You stopped living the life that I want you to live. He didn't knock him on the side of the head and said, Peter, get it right. I can't believe you sank. Just go back to that boat, Peter. No. This was the training ground of faith. Jesus commanded him, knowing full well Peter would take his eyes off of him. Here's the deal, guys. It's not about living a mistake-free life. Faith doesn't say, I'll only risk walking on God's commands if I know I can't fail. That's not faith. You see, the like Peter, the more we follow Jesus, the more we are on the training ground of faith. And you will fail at times in serving the Lord. And failure is not an option. It's a necessity. Faith is messy. Man, you get out into God's will, you're out in the storm. It's messy. Faith is messy. But this is the training ground, full of times of sinking and winds and waves. But Jesus is there to catch us. His strong arm will catch you. Grace is sufficient for you. His power is made perfect in weakness. He will pick you back up. See, here's the coolest thing in this account with Peter. Whether we sink or walk, we demonstrate the greatness of our God when we say yes and obey him. But he sank. What happened when they got back in the boat? Peter may have failed the water walking team, but the point wasn't to get to, for Peter to walk on water. This is the point. For the first time in the Bible, the disciples would bow at the feet of Jesus and say, surely this is the Son of God. It's the very first time they acknowledged it. You see, he needed to send them into something that they needed to be protected from and to sink into something they couldn't stand on so they could know that he is provider and protector and their faith would increase. I'm wrapping it up right now. You have faith baskets all around your feet to remind you of the goodness and faithfulness of your God. Here's the question. Do you choose to see them or do you choose to see the storm? Do you look at your own weaknesses or the strength of Jesus? God's faithfulness yesterday informs my today and my tomorrow. Did you know if you've heard of Corey Ten Boom? How many of you heard of him? Band, you can come up. If you've ever heard of Corey Ten Boom, Christian believer, writer during World War II, did you know that she was actually the one that coined that phrase, the safest place is to be at the center of God's will? I want you to hear me. I know that the band will come up and stuff, but listen to this. Corey Ten Boom, World War II, coined that phrase, the safest place is to be at the center of God's will. 45 days later, after she wrote those words, she found herself in a Nazi concentration camp, and she wrote this, there is no pit so deep that he, Jesus, is not deeper still. Are you in a storm? Are you in a storm? Jesus is there. He's faithful. Will you pray with me? Lord God, I thank you that you are faithful. 
I thank you that you're even willing to let us struggle a little bit, Father, so we can know that there's one thing we need to do, trust you. God, I pray that you'd strengthen hearts, give them eyes to see and ears to hear your voice right now, Father, you speaking to them. Lord, you're the God over all the storms of our lives, over all our weakness. You own it by the blood of the Lamb if we belong to you. So praise you, Lord. Father, there's many in here that just need encouragement, Father. But there's many that are trying to do it in their own strength. I pray they would cry out to you. That they would consider what you've done in their lives and know that there's always hope. There's always hope for tomorrow, always. Just as you rose from the third day, Lord Jesus, you've conquered and defeated death and sin. Father, I praise you. And Lord, I pray you would just bless this worship. That you'd speak to our hearts. Holy Spirit, move upon your people, Father. I pray for those who don't know you, that they would call on the name of Jesus and be saved. They'd simply just say, Jesus, save me. And Father, you would hear and rescue them. Lord, I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.